Well, good morning. Welcome to our uh, welcome to our message this morning. Glad to have you here today. Uh, my name is Ben Keller. I'm one of the uh, current board members here at the Rock Church, and it's my pleasure to be able to to share today's message with you. We're going to continue through our our Psalms of Ascent that we've been going through for several weeks now. Uh, this week we are going through Psalm 130, and it's it's really a, a neat psalm. And I hope you enjoy walking through this with me. Um, Last week we were in Psalm 129, and Pastor Mike shared with us this kind of picture of, of, uh, of persecution that we as a church might go through. And, and that brings us to dark places sometimes. And we're going to transition from, from that uh, kind of dark place to a new dark place this week in, in Psalm 130. We start, um, uh, we're going to see a, a significant change from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm. And just as a reminder, what we're going through here, all these psalms of ascent, these are, these are songs that the nation of Israel would sing as they're, as they're transitioning through, as they're journeying to these different uh, festivals. And this specific psalm is, is one that really, I think, um, has a lot of emotion and a lot of raw um, grit to it, and I, I hope we can relate to it. Um, we'll go ahead and get started. If you would, please, if you've got a, a, a copy of the Lord's Word with you, please open it up to Psalm 130 and, and read with me as we go through this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us through this, this, this passage, that you would uh, stir in our hearts uh, self-reflection and and the uh, just the, the that you would speak to us, Lord, in spirit, that we might respond to your word, that we might uh, see its its uh, life changing impact on our own life, uh, illuminate it for us, that we would see the truth you have in store for us, Father. In your name, we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and dig into this psalm. Uh, it, it's really a, a a neat picture of this transition. Uh, of a person in their despair to rejoicing. So it starts, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now a lot of us feel like we're in deep places right now, that we're in the depths. So when we're talking about the depths, we're talking about somewhere that is just hard, somewhere where you feel buried, that you feel like you're, you're hurt and your pain and and, and your longing for relief is just the most powerful force in your life, and you're just covered up by it. Um, I think a lot of us would feel that way in this strange new world just because we want relief from, 
from the changes required of us, but, but we don't see that in sight, and it's hard to see. And for some of us, our depths are more acute. Our depths are more specific. Um, and maybe they're just compounded by the culture we're in right now. Uh, some of you might be going through um, you know, a sickness or, or uh, an addiction or uh, a relationship that's tearing you up, and those are your depths. And when you add that on top of the cultural upheaval we have right now, it's difficult to, to just feel good. I mean, you just feel like you're, you're stuck in the muck and the mire. And that's where the writer of this psalm starts. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. What's, what's neat to see here is that it's in these depths that he or she seeks the Lord. In the depths this person prays. Some of our greatest expressions of faith come when we're in the depths. I'm not talking about... Um, you know, Ricky Bobby praying to sweet baby Jesus, you know, to help me win a race, right? That's not the kind of depth this guy's in. You see, the, the depth of our, of our expression of faith is relative, I think, to the depth of our circumstance, right? So if, if we're a, a fake NASCAR driver, right, the depth of our expression of faith is going to be limited to, to something superficial. If, if, if our, the depth of our faith is superficial, then the depth of our request is going to be superficial, uh, that's not the case here. That's not what we're looking at in this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. When you're in these deep, dark moments of life, our stakes are the highest, right? And when our stakes are the highest, our focus on God may be at the greatest. There's an unashamed genuous to our prayer when it's coming from the depths, when we're in those depths. King David was there many times, right? And we can see that throughout the Psalms that he wrote. Just the, the despair he was going through, whether he was being chased and pursued and, and people trying to kill him or just confused by why his circumstances were where they were or if they were self-inflicted depths. Uh, his own sin that got him into trouble. That when he found himself in those moments of anguish, you see this raw... Uh, genuineness to the way he pleaded with God to forgive him or to release him or give him some kind of relief from the anguish he was going through. Jesus himself was in the depths, right? We've seen that before. Uh, in Luke 22, uh, this is Jesus in the garden just before his death. And he says, he, he's praying. And he's, you, you can just you can just see, you can kind of picture the depth that Jesus is in as he knows what's coming. He knows what's in store for him. He knows the Father's plan for him and the Father's will for his life, but he still pleads, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That is depths, all right? Jesus is certainly in something deep there. I mean, the agony is so great that he's sweating blood. In that moment, you see his, his prayer for relief is so honest and so revealing of the condition of his heart and of his faith also. 
in our depths, the desperation filters out a lot of the garbage. And that's what we see from Jesus in this passage. It's from the depths that our most honest plea is often made. And that's where this psalmist is when he's recording this, when he's uh, sharing this with, with uh, those traveling with him. He goes on to say, Let your ears be attentive, O Lord, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Verse 2, he starts to say, Oh Lord, hear my voice, hear my voice. We saw this in, in Nehemiah's prayer, in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1. Uh, and, and I'm going to bounce back to this verse, but I'm going to just read this portion of it where he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. You see, the key here is that the psalmist's request is that the Lord hear my prayer. Notice he doesn't say that the Lord may answer my prayer. There's a big difference here. I mean, it, it, you know, verbally it looks subtle, but it, it, it's a significant difference in our expectation of how we want God to respond to us. Oftentimes we fall down that slippery slope of expecting God to answer us, of 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 perceiving how we want God to answer us. But we're going too far with that. Really what we ought to be doing is just what the psalmist does here. Lord, just hear me. Just hear, God. If your ears would hear me, I know I'm good. I know I'm good if your ears would hear me. Charles Spurgeon, and throughout this, throughout this message, I'm going to share with you a few thoughts that I, I gleaned as I was preparing for this. I, I found some, um, some writings of Charles Spurgeon on this very uh, passage, and I want to share some of those with you as I go throughout. I'll kind of sprinkle them in. But one on this specific topic, Charles Spurgeon wrote, If the Lord will but hear us, we will leave it to his superior wisdom to decide whether he will answer us or no. It is better for our prayer to be heard than answered. Did you catch that? It is better for our prayer to be heard than answered. If the Lord were to make an absolute promise to answer all our requests, it might be rather a curse than a blessing. For it would be casting the responsibility of our lives upon ourselves, and we should be placed in a very anxious position. But now the Lord hears our desires... And that is enough. We only wish him to grant them if his infinite wisdom sees that it would be for our good and for his glory. You see, we build this expectation of how we want God to respond to our prayers, how we want God to answer. We have this perception of what that ought to look like. And then when God doesn't do what we've built an expectation for him to do, we feel like he's let us down. And that ought not be a feeling you have because he will not. He will not. And this psalmist recognizes that, that, Lord, all I want is for you to hear me. If you hear me, you're good, and your perfect will will do the right thing, right? God will answer you when he wants to answer you or if he needs to or, or like uh, in the, the great uh, wise writings of Garth Brooks, sometimes we thank God for unanswered prayers, Right? It's, it's through God's timing and through God's perfect will that he responds to our petitions. All that we need to know is that he hears us. If he hears us, we're good. 
So this psalmist asks, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And at this point of it, we haven't really gotten a good glimpse of what's going on with this psalmist. This person is singing this. I mean, it sounds like a, speaking of Garth Brooks, this kind of sounds like the start of a country song, right? Things are, things are rough for this guy. Things are, are really rough. Um, we don't know the circumstances until we get to the next verse. And when we get to the next verse, we all of a sudden get some insight. And uh, this is where we see a big contrast from last week, Psalm 129, where we might be in the depths because of the uh, persecution of other people against us as a church, as a whole. But now we're looking at an individual suffering. And this individual is suffering because of his, some circumstance of his own making, right? That there's something going on in this person's life that um, they know they need forgiveness of. So in verse 3, the writer goes on and says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who could stand, right? So now we see why this person is in their depths. This person has some sin in their life that has got them by the throat, right? And I think, I think what he's saying here, oh, Lord, who could stand? Well, none of us, right? Not me, not you, not this psalmist, not King David. None of us can stand if the Lord should mark iniquities, We've all been there. We've all had that in our life, whether you want to admit it or not. And maybe if you haven't felt that way, it's because you haven't got to that point of admitting that that's where you are or have been. Let's talk a little bit about specifically what iniquities are. Some of your translations might say sin instead of iniquities. And I think iniquities is actually a more specific word here, and I think it's for a reason. See, sin is anything that misses the mark. I think you guys are probably familiar with that. The, the word sin is an archer's term for missing the mark. So sin is a more general term than iniquities. Sin is anything we do that might miss the mark God has in store for us. And in fact, we see in Old Testament law that sometimes God would even have uh, his, his people go through certain motions to... Um, relieve them of the consequence of even unintended sins, sins they weren't even aware of. So there's sins a person can do that aren't really intentional wrongdoings, but nevertheless, they fall short of God's calling. But iniquities are different, you see. Iniquities is a more specific and intentional misbehavior, okay? So this is going out of your way to do something you know is wrong. Think David and Bathsheba, right? Think David's sin. David, David sees this woman that he finds beautiful, and not only does he commit adultery with her, but then he decides he's going to come up with this plan to have her husband killed in action to relieve him from this guilt, but it doesn't work that way. That's iniquity. That's a picture of iniquity. And the fact is, like this psalmist recognizes, we've all been there. We've all been there. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of some kind of iniquity whether it's past or present, it's something in our life that weighs us down. And if, if, as this psalmist writes, if God were to hold us for account, strict justice for all of our iniquities or any one of our iniquities, we couldn't stand. We're not nearly righteous enough. We're all guilty. Now, 
we often call for justice, right? When we see something wrong, when we, someone, when we see someone commit some kind of wrongdoing, especially just something that's um, grossly inappropriate or, or uh, just an abomination to humanity, when we, say, we see someone, uh, you know, abuse a child, we say anybody that treats a child that way ought to be just dragged through the street and, and torn apart, right? I mean, that's that's our, our, our sense of right and wrong and of outrage is sparked when we see something like that, and we call for strict justice in those cases. But we got to be careful what we ask for, right? Because the fact is, just like this psalmist recognizes, we're all in that boat, right? We're all in that boat, and we've seen this before. We've seen this in the New Testament. Um, uh, John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we see a picture here of, of uh, once again, the Pharisees trying to set Jesus up. The Pharisees trying to, to kind of trick Jesus into some kind of misstep. Um, and they bring this woman before Jesus. He's teaching. He's, he actually just returned from uh, from teaching. He, you know he's exhausted, but he continues to teach, and they come before him. And they say, all right, we, we finally got you, Jesus. We caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, the law, the law says that she's guilty, and we're to stone her to death. What do you say we do with her, Jesus? And Jesus kind of quietly bends down in the sand and with his finger, he etches out some words in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. But he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? And this term woman here is, is kind of this endearing term of, 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 of dear, where are they? It's, it's, a, it's an affectionate term. He's loving her. He's, he's connecting with her. And he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. That is such a beautiful picture of, of Christ's compassion. You see, in that, that his treatment of this woman leads us into our, our, our next verse in our Psalm 130. Because the psalmist says, look, God, if, if, you, if, you just, if you just treat us for our iniquities, none of us could stand. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What greater message is there in all of humanity than that God with you, there is forgiveness, right? That's the most freeing thing there is. That's something that we should really rejoice in because we, we should dwell on this sentence, but with you, there is forgiveness. So let's look at that as, as we apply it to what we just talked about with Jesus in, uh, in, in this woman at the, at the temple here that they brought um, Let's understand that, that, that God does, in fact, require an account for all our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, whatever it is. But rather than require an accounting at the time of our screw-up, 
essentially God says, okay, I'm going to put it off for another day, right? I'm going to put it off because he just so desperately wants to share with you, to share with me, to share with the woman in adultery, to share with the psalmist. He wants to share his mercy with us. So strict justice would have required this adulterous woman to be stoned, right? I mean, that's what the law required. That's what strict justice would have required. But what Jesus got these people thinking and realizing is strict justice would also require each person in that crowd to just get in line behind her, right? And that ought to be scary for some of us. That ought to compel us to rethink the way we want to hold other people accountable, the way we want to pick out the sins of other people, the way we want to identify and point out for them their sins. Because what that really does is it just allows us some reprieve from our own, right? I mean, that's really what we're doing if we're being honest. It's so easy, it's so easy to see the sins in other people's lives, right? And to say, man, you ought to be held accountable for that, especially the grievous ones, right? Especially like I talked about earlier, these, these, these just uh, sick acts against humanity. Murder, rape, uh, abuse, child trafficking. These things that just destroy lives, right? We want to be able to to separate ourselves from the transgressions of other people. And the fact of the matter is, here, within this horizontal plane of earth, while we're getting along in this society, there is differences. And God gives us that freedom to, to establish laws, right? To, to maintain society, to maintain some kind of um, organization in civilization that we might be able to live in peace. So there are laws that distinguish the depravity of one crime versus another crime. But you see, God doesn't have that same system when he's doling out true accountability for our transgressions, for our iniquities. It's all the same, right? It's, it's all the same. Jesus taught that, that it's, it's not... It's not that you have to go through the act of committing a murder. If you just have the thought in your mind, you've missed the mark. You've, you've, you've committed this iniquity just at that moment of, of thinking that, of having that lustful thought. You might as well have, have committed the act um, in, the, in the economy of, of God. So we got to be careful when we're demanding strict justice. Now, we should... We ought to um, expect accountability to the laws of the land that, that you know, we require of people. We, we can't just murder and get away with it. And we don't expect someone who murders to have the same punishment as someone who jaywalks, right? Um, but when we're talking about these kind of iniquities, we're not talking about levels of cr crime and punishment thereof. We're talking about holy standing before God. Right? And that's a very different thing. So these people that brought this woman to Jesus, they weren't so interested in prosecuting a crime. They were interested in highlighting her unrighteousness before God for the purpose of getting Jesus 
to recognize that and say, yep, that's true. We've got to do it. Pick up the rocks, right? But Jesus had a different picture. He knew she needed to be held accountable, and he knew that someday she would be called into account for, for the choices she's made in her life. But in this moment, but in this moment, Jesus didn't hold her strictly accountable in this timing. Instead, he gave her the opportunity to go and sin no more. It's that kind of love. It's that kind of patience um, that generates in us the second part of this verse, that God may be feared. You see, God's design for his creation was not to demonstrate his authority by crushing all who disobey him, right? Or all who fall short. You see, his design was to love us and for us to love him. It's his love that compels him to offer mercy, to allow us that opportunity, just like this woman, to go and sin no more. A few weeks ago, Try talked about, Pastor Try talked about the fear of the Lord, and he related it to this picture of, of his kids in the wood stove at home. Do you recall that? That, that you know, once, the, once, a, once you touch that wood stove, you've got that in your memory bank, and you have a new fear for that wood stove. But you don't, you don't shudder and cringe and curl up in the fetal position when you see it. You've got this, this adoration for the wood stove because it brings you comfort. It brings you warmth and it has something to offer you. But also you have to maintain a respect for that so that you aren't hurt. That's, that's the kind of fear we're talking about here, that you acknowledge and recognize that this incredible authority, that even though I, as a sinner, deserve strict justice. What greater authority is there than one who can forgive me and redeem me from that, right? Charles Spurgeon goes on and he says, none fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. If the Lord were to execute justice upon all, there would be none left to fear him. If all were under apprehension of his deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing him. It is grace which leads the way to a holy regard of God and a fear of grieving him. You see, it's, it's God's love and mercy, his grace in our lives that makes us understand the true, powerful character of God that's worthy of, of that kind of respected fear, right? So this psalmist is, is in the depths because of this psalmist's own, own iniquity. The psalmist has committed some act in his or her life that has this person just, just at a loss, right? But we've seen this before. I started to read Nehemiah before, and what I think is interesting about Nehemiah is Nehemiah is a person of high character, of high regard. And what's neat is, is he makes this prayer, uh, and I started reading this before, and I'll pick it up again. He says, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive 
and your eyes open, that's the part we covered before, to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house have sinned. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is one of those people that, man, I just, I just can't see the flaws. I, I, just, I just can't see where this guy falls short, right? But he does. He knows it. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. You see, even Daniel recognizes that he's part of He's part of this group. He's part of this group of humanity, right? It's not a very exclusive club. If you're a person, you're part of it, right? That we have sinned and we've acted wickedly and we've rebelled and that's all of us. So here's my caution to you at this point. At this point, I want you to step back and, and, I, and let, let's be clear here. I'm not saying that if, if, if you're in depths, if you're struggling through something, it's probably the sin in your life. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want to be one of Job's friends who, who made that mistake. But what I'm saying is, is we do need to make sure that we are self-reflective, make sure that we are willing to, to cast that, shine that light on our own lives and say, where am I falling short, God? Where have I screwed up? You know, like King David, when, when uh, the prophet Nathan called him out on his own, on his own sin, you know, he, he was pretty sneaky, but he said, you know, David, what if you saw a person uh, commit this act uh, against somebody else? And David says, man, I wouldn't tolerate that. That person, that person ought to be dealt with right away. And Nathan says, David, it's you. You're the guy, right? And at that point, at that point, David was broken, David was broken and he, he realized his transgression. And there's, there's where you see one of those pictures uh, of, of this broken man who's seeking the forgiveness of God. And it's in that raw uh, despair that you see this honest plea for, for God's change in his life. So what I'm asking you to do is to... to Allow yourself to be honest with yourself before you go casting stones, right? Before you go um, telling other people why what they believe is wrong, why the world is bad because of their choices, why we're a screwed up society because of the way they act. Man, we got we to gotta look at ourselves. We got to look at ourselves and say, where am I falling short, right? Let's keep Let's keep our own side of the street clean before we worry about the people on the other side. The psalmist goes on in verse 5. says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Little repetition there, huh? We see, we see, we see kind of the same thing over and over here in this. My soul waits for the Lord. Waiting requires an expectation, right? Have you ever just sat around and waited for nothing? No, you're just sitting there doing nothing. Somebody said, "What are you waiting for?" Uh, just waiting, right? I mean, no, no, you don't just wait for nothing, right? There is no waiting. 
unless there's some object, right? Unless there's some reward or result or expectation to have something happen. You wait for something, right? There is no waiting without hope, right? Otherwise, you're just doing nothing. I mean, waiting is an actual action. And if you're doing nothing, that's different than waiting. Sometimes you're doing nothing while you're waiting, but waiting is an actual action, and it can only exist if there's something on the other end of your waiting, if there's something you're hoping for. That's what the psalm's talking about here. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. So what are you waiting for? Well, when you're waiting, it's, it's for the hope. And in this case, my hope is in the word, right? So waiting is easy when the reward is high. Or waiting is easy when the result is likely. See, if, if, if we're waiting for something that may or may not happen, there's a slim chance it'll happen, it's hard to sit around and wait for something that we don't really think is probably going to happen. Our, our patience for that dissolves pretty quickly. Or if it's something we don't really care about, something that we're just not really that interested in happening, you're not going to wait around for it, Right? But when the reward is high, when it's something that you really desire or something that you know is going to happen, the waiting is easier. If you ask my wife, would she rather wait for me to return from the Home Depot or from Walmart, she's definitely going to tell you she'd rather wait for me to return from Walmart. Because when I'm going to Walmart, I am surgical, right? I am the Corey Jost of Walmart shoppers. I've got a plan. I'm in and out, okay? And... And she won't have to wait long if she's waiting for me to go into Walmart, okay? Now, if I got a Home Depot, right, I might have that in and out plan in my mind. But the reality is, is, man, there's power tools there, right? So my wife might end up waiting a little bit longer. So she's going to choose, she's going to choose to wait for me to come out of Walmart because the likelihood of me coming out quicker is higher, all right? Easier for her to wait in that circumstance, In this case, what this psalmist is writing about is he's waiting on something that's both, right? It's a grand reward that that this person is longing for, and it's something they can trust is already in place. That's the beauty of God's word, is that we can we can we can trust that it it has already performed what it says it will do. We know. We know the end result, right? That's, that's exciting. That's encouraging to know that everything we're doing is really just the journey to a destination that's already assured for us. So the waiting, while sometimes it's tough, is worth it, right? I'm going to cite Spurgeon again here because he's much smarter than I am. He says... God is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith, exercises patience, trains submission, and endears the blessing when it comes, right? So not only is the waiting worth it, but the waiting itself has value to us. Let's not forget that this psalmist is not waiting in the uh, Platinum Club members-only lounge, right? I mean, 
that's not where this person is. Remember, this person's in the trenches. This person's in despair, in the depths. This person's enduring pain with a hand around his or her throat just wanting relief. Yet, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. And sometimes it's in this depth where our patience is amplified because we've got no other choice, right? We've got no other choice when we're in the depths but to long for Christ, to long for his relief in our lives. The psalmist gives a really cool illustration of this waiting. And I think, you know, not a lot of us have been a city watchman uh, at nighttime like he's referring to here, but I think we can relate to it otherwise. You know, I can tell you that uh, I can remember standing watch when I was in the Navy, and, and I remember sometimes I just wanted morning come because it was so boring, right? I mean, sometimes when you're watching at a night shift, it is just boring. Sometimes it was dreaded because it was boring, but other times it wasn't boring. When it was boring, I could not wait for the sun to come up and relieve me uh, from my shift. And when it wasn't boring... I could not wait for the sun to come up to relieve me from the distress of my, of my duty. So there's relief in the light of the morning. Because you see, at nighttime, you can't see the dangers. At nighttime, you can't see what's coming. There's this uh, trepidation of, of, of what is going to happen. And, and, and you don't know because you can't see. Things are hidden. There's mystery at nighttime. Uh, maybe you can recall as a, as a, as a child... Or maybe you've had your kids, you ever have your kids uh, camp out in the backyard and the test is to see how many of them can make it till morning, right? Or maybe you've been that child or, or maybe you're, you're uh, in a tent up on the mountain and, and you know those noises out there you're hearing are things that could kill you, right? <laughs> I mean, you know that. You are waiting for the sun to come up. You're waiting for that light to to rescue you. Uh, it's like the sun gives you permission to end the misery of not actually sleeping on the ground, right? So that's, that's this picture that the psalmist is writing. I, this person who's longing for the night to end, who just cannot wait for the sun to come up and, and give them peace because they're not in peace as long as they're in that, that, uh, that watch during the night. That's our attitude, that ought to be our attitude waiting for Christ to relieve us from whatever it is. And, and, and this, can be, this can be an application to the depth that we're going through right now, this, this, uh, this valley that we happen to be going through at this stage of my life, waiting for relief, waiting for the Lord to come and shine his light of relief on my situation. But this is also, this is also a bigger picture, right? This is... Lord Jesus, just come, right? I'm ready. How many of you are ready, right? Lord Jesus, just come relieve us. Come get us. Come get us. That's, that's the same longing. We ought to have this longing to be in God's presence like a watchman waits for the morning. That is a picture of our longing for us. We ought to be anxious for his presence in our life. The psalmist takes the last couple verses and 
and uh, kind of summarizes it and says, all these things that God has done in my life, God can do for all of God's people, right? So in these last verses, in verse 7, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we're going through these songs of ascent, right? And we've seen this kind of progression as we go through this, this literal ascent. From 129 to 130, you don't see much upward ascent when you, when you get into it. In fact, you might see a little descending action when it starts with, Oh, Lord, I cry out from the depths, right? That's not, a, that's not a high place to be. But what you see in this psalm is an incredible ascent from beginning to end, right? To go from, to go from out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, to he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, that's, that's a significant change. That goes from this, this agonizing pleading to a position of rejoicing. That's where this psalm leads us. And what you see here is the first six verses of this is this personal story of redemption for the psalmist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who's guilty of sin. I am broken, I am hurt, and I've done it to myself. And I've got no hope in myself but I've got hope in God. And because of my hope in God, I know I will be relieved. I will be redeemed. And that's worth rejoicing. In that story, that is the redemption of my life, the psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel. Now, let me go out on a limb here a little bit with my theology, all right? Be patient with me here. You see, the Old Testament dealt primarily with God's chosen people as a whole, right? So most of the things happened happened to the nation of Israel. The individual stories that were going on within the Old Testament all were just part of the story of the whole nation of Israel, God's chosen people. The sin of one affected the whole nation, right? You see, you see this, this one clown goes and does the wrong thing, uh, keeps some things that he wasn't supposed to keep, and now the whole nation of Israel loses a, loses a battle because of that guy's sin. That's kind of the picture of what the Old Testament was. It was, let me show you how this entire nation can handle uh, this, this part of history. Now, God was primarily concerned with the well-being of the collective nation, and this was, as I read to you before, this was reflected in Nehemiah's and in Daniel's prayers where they said, Lord, our nation needs restored. Please forgive us for our iniquities. Please forgive us as a whole nation for the way we've let you down. And we don't see that same thing now. You see, God still desires the unity and redemption of his people. And, and I'm not going to get into the uniqueness of the nation of Israel in today's history. But what we as, as Gentiles see is that the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel, 
is a picture of the nation of Ben, right? Is a, is a picture of my individual life. Is a picture of your individual life. It's a picture of this psalmist's individual life. See, the nation of Israel as a whole went through these ups and downs. It transgressed, it sinned, it sought forgiveness, and God forgave it, and then God restored it. And that's what God wants in your life. God understands, and he wants you to understand that you are a transgressor, that you have sinned, that you don't measure up to what he calls. That's, that's the truth in my life. I have fallen short, right? I've fallen short, but just like the nation of Israel, I just have to cry out to him. Say, God, redeem me, restore me. You're my only hope. And in that, he does. He does that. So the nation of the, the Old Testament points to the way God wants to entreat my life. Because you see, with the new covenant, with, with, with Christ's first coming, we are called to individual faith in an individual relationship with God. See, that was a foreign concept in the Old Testament, but that's something that we're called to. We're called to a specific and unique and individual relationship with our our Lord and Creator. The same relationship the entire nation of Israel, Israel had, separate and distinct from all other nations at the time, is what I have with God, separate and distinct from what others have. It's through our individual faith and our individual relationship with Christ through the divine transformation of that life that the Spirit compels each of us as individuals into a relationship with this community, right? This church that we get to be a part of. See, that's, that's this, this subtle difference here. So when we get to the end of Psalm 130 and the psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist is talking about you. The psalmist is talking about me. The psalmist is calling us to this same story. He's telling you, God is telling you in this picture, that there is a story of redemption here for you, right? And that's a beautiful thing. Where are you, right? Are you, are you in the depths right now? It's pretty easy to be. In fact, I think some of us don't even know what isn't depths anymore, right? I mean, some of us just feel like that's just, that's just the world. We just live in a deep world right now. And it's, it's hard for us to even maybe remember uh, what it looked like not in the depths. But that's kind of feeling sorry for ourselves a little bit. Some of us really are. I mean, it's, it's a pain to have to look around and be frustrated with some of the things people ask of us, right? But it's not the depths. It's not a big deal. I mean, it is not changing um, God's grace in your life, some of the, the contemporary things you're asked to do during this, this covid uh, you know, God is, is, is calling you to something bigger than to be upset about where we are with this stuff. On the other hand, these circumstances have led some of us into the depths. 
Some of us are really struggling financially in our community. Some of us, because of, of the circumstances we're going through, uh, can't pay our bills, are, are wondering how we're going to get by the next month, the next day, right? How are we going to feed our kids? Some of us, completely separate from all this COVID business, um, are suffering through, through cancer, right? And these moments of depth, whether it's sickness, whether it's knowing that, man, I, I screwed up again last night, I, I, I broke down and I went back to the bottle, or I, um, I went back to the needle, I, uh, I went back to that relationship that I know I shouldn't be in. And when we recognize that, when we acknowledge that, man, we feel like we're in the depths like this psalmist. We feel like we're in the depths like King David. And I hope, I hope for your own redemption story that you do find yourself in the depths. Because from those depths, there's great blessing. Because it's in those depths where you get down on your knees and you plead with God and you have this, this honest and this, this true and real and gritty and gutty and raw communication with God. And it's in those moments that God changes our life, right? And it's in those moments that God can restore us and say, I got you, I got you. Come on up, find your hope in me. Find your hope in me, I got you. I don't know what you're going through, um, but I know some of you are going through rough, rough things right now. And if you're not, either you will be or, or someone near to you is, right? Um, let's be patient with folks because we don't know what they're going through. Let's be loving to folks because we don't know what they're enduring. Um, come alongside people in the depths uh, wherever you have the opportunity to do it. Let's not be the, the Pharisees who are looking for reasons to cast stones at other folks because we don't know what they're going through. We don't know what God's timing is to restore and redeem that person, and he does not need you to figure that out for him, right? So let's, uh, let's come alongside this psalmist. Let's share in this journey from the depths to redemption because there's nothing more beautiful than knowing that my broken life, my broken life, that is deserving of death, that is deserving of eternal separation from God. That's me. And yet God has chosen me. God has chosen to reveal himself to me that I might be made whole, that I might be redeemed, just like the psalmist is. Let's pray. Our God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful journey that this psalmist has shared with us, that you have shared with us through this person's life, God. We thank you for the struggles that this person endured, and we thank you for our own struggles, God, that through them we might see the hope that is you, the hope that is your word, that we might uh, rejoice in your willingness to redeem us, that we might be willing to look hard at our lives and not judge others, but to see where you would have us improve our own lives, to draw closer to you, to get down on our knees and to seek your forgiveness that only then, only then can we be in a position to, to bask in your glory. Only then, through our acknowledgement of our own shortcomings, our own sins, our own failures, um, our own pharisaical law-giving to other people, that only through that breakdown of our own lives can you restore us 
And are you willing to stretch out your hand to us and give us hope and shine that the morning light on our lives to, to give us relief, God? Please come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.